0: my whole philosophy of writing I think really you've landed on it really because uh, for me the, it's time travel to, to honour the dead.
1: Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics with me Jessica Andrews and my co-host Jack Young.
2: If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering tender buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster.
1: We're really excited to bring you our first guest of season two, Max Porter. Max Porter is the author of The Death of Francis Bacon, Lanny, which was longlisted for the Booker Prize, and Grief is the Thing with Feathers, winner of the International Dylan Thomas Prize and shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Goldsmiths Prize. He is a recipient of the Sunday Times Peters, Fraser & Dunlop Young Writer of the Year Award.
2: Max Porter, welcome to Tender Buttons. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. And we're wondering if you could start with a reading from your most recent book, The Death of Francis Bacon.
0: Yes. Do you want to do like a little introduction? This is... um... It's actually not my most recent book because the exclusive news is that I just finished my new book. But yeah, it, this is, um, lo- it, unexpectedly in lockdown, I was working on lots of different projects and um, obviously had had, I was supposed to be going, well, I was supposed to be away a lot, you know, with with Lanny and paperback and stuff and that was all cancelled and I found myself in this strange position of doing a lot of mentoring online and being like everyone, in, very interested in and bothered by and in some ways... Um, challenged by this kind of, the intensity of the Zoom box and the the, the house, the locked-in house, and the domestic experience as well, and, and totally unexpectedly just thought, I'm just going to write this book about Francis Bacon. Because um, it was short, intense, essayistic fragments, um, it was not... Um, Fictional in any conventional way, nor was it art history, so i didn't need any i didn't need to go to the library and research it or anything like that. It was something I could create from what I had already read and and it felt uh yeah it just it was uh i didn't expect anyone to publish it really it felt like a really good thing to deepen my own thinking about form um and that, not not i i don't you know in a way it being published i don't mean it's exclusionary to the reader i think it does i hope it has some interesting things for readers in there. But in its moment of creation, I was very locked into it in a private way. And that's quite an interesting thing when those books then come out that you've done in a private... You know, because then you have to sort of think, well, what, 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 how much of the scaffolding is visible and how much is shown and what does it mean to a reader? And then obviously publishing is quite a blunt tool. So it's like, do you need to know who Francis Bacon is? Do you need to have read a lot of biographical information about Bacon? Should we have pictures? You know, are the pictures made up and all that? And you're like, oh, those tools are all mucky, boring you know, so suddenly the richness of your private writing experience is, is subject to the, the bluntness of the critical environment and stuff. So it's really interesting book it's published, but I still kind of can't believe anyone did publish it. Um, but basically it's, a, it's, a, it's an encounter between a, 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 a figure who may or may not be Francis Bacon, lying on his deathbed, cared for, interviewed by, taunted by, unpacked by, and imitated by this, this figure who may or may not be a nurse an art historian, a critic, um, his own ego and so on and so forth. And it's in these seven painted sections and each one begins with uh, him inviting her to sit down and, her, and ends with her saying to him, get some rest. And this is from the first one. Second one. When she is off, every time she offers him a story, um, you asked for a short intro I'm giving you longer than the bloody book that's uh, great <laughs> every time she she gives him a choice between the story of Francis Bacon or another story and each time until the last one he chooses another story uh, and various pleasantries are exchanged you look well Ilfriff. if you look well Edward long ride good day strong wind sea air here come some beer a long gladdening gulp of gold the colour of the stone strange look First, cold, extremely cold, and makes him think of river swims and soiling his sheets. Shock, shame, the wet sock game. Being stabbed is the same, extraordinary pain. The colour blue. Lapis right through him, and then again and again. And she's walking back into the castle when he's dripping venison, memory, white fat, and clicking smoke dripping onto the stones, trying to turn and see where the hurt is. Caught in the stirrup, and upside down, crack on the skull, metal thump in the side, in a brawl with the pages. Again, crack. Again, black bits of his brain scattered on the track, thumping down the hill, down the hill, down the hill, and into the river corf. Last thought is of the beer, wasted. Where is the cup? We are concerned with those who notice the cup. Yes, the dead king. Yes, politics, meat and temporality. But also the well-made cup. Perched, body ripe and crucial on the road. Yes. Now you've got me thinking. Unseated picador, all horse and no animal. Not good enough. This is how I think when I'm at it. Thrown rider. Horribly kitchen pointless pitcher. Futile nod to decoration. But I do like the grey area. Feels like scab. Several hundred quid in a pewter pint mug, light catching cameo from a William Nicholson. Behind the orange male nude I left half done. London is several days away in either direction. A gold bit, on something to hold, teeth on metal. Imagine that. I used to like the idea of a back strap. Yes, peeling a scab, lifting off the whole clotty lot of it and seeing the root. Veruca stippled. These are a few of my favourite things. Yes, sister, that's just marvellous. You are quite marvellous. I thought it was Peter reading to me, but I see, of course, it's you. I wonder if I might have no pain, if you'd be so kind. No pain? see, si. No pain. see. Si. Intenta descansar.
2: I think it's really interesting thinking about Francis Bacon as a subject matter and your own experiments of language, both in grief as the of feathers and Lani and in this, because of the nature, I guess, with Bacon's painting where where so often he was very resistant to the idea of the narrative or the story around the painting and wanted to get like to a pulse of feeling. Yeah. And I feel like the language as we heard it then and throughout that book, the play of the language itself is part of the drive of your book, The Death of Francis Bacon. So I wondered like... About your relationship to narrative in *The Death of Francis Bacon* and maybe in your other books, and like how language achieves some of that or also resists it mm. in *The Death of Francis Bacon*.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got to, everything's got to be bespoke to the project you're working on. I feel that very strongly. So, you know, experiments should only be for the the book. You know, not 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 an indulgence or not, a, as I said before, not a kind of exclusionary tactic um, to please the writer. So they're very different in each book, despite the apparent similarities. You know, the form and the way that you either do or don't have narrative, or what you leave out of the narrative, quite crucially in my first book, or like a polyphonic thing in my second book. With Bacon, I guess the ultimate thing for me, and I hope for him, is the avoidance of illustration. To do anything literal with the imagery in the book, uh, and to not disrupt it for sensory purposes, as you say, to not have language behave as part of his representational project, which was, which was figurative, Crucially, but also littered with art history and and um, and in jokes and and meat and all these things. So I was trying to simultaneously get as far away from the famous stories of Bacon's life as possible. I don't. I'm not, I'm not writing a biopic. I'm not. I'm not doing one of the famous Soho nights. All those sorts of things. But realizing that the propulsion of the language itself, uh, right down into the into the kind of granular level of the sentence, has to include those things has to drop their own name into it because that's what Bacon did, you know. So I'm trying to get the most Bacon-y thing I can in the language whilst also trying to strike a fresh note. And then you have to sort of like, well, I found at least, I guess it's the same with any project, whether it's a poem or an obvious thing. Well, that is my aims. And now I've started, I see what, that, what damage that's going to do to the experience for the reader or what damage it's going to do to a paragraph or to, you know, a narrative arc and then reconcile yourself to that damage and see if you can make something beautiful or... Or compelling um, and that is an experiment that usually with my work relates to the readers experience on the page in the work and it's an emotional or political or whatever and this book was just slightly at one remove because it didn't relate to that for me it related to Bacon's work and trying to get at something that I feel in it um, and ultimately I realized quite early on doing it that wouldn't be necessarily that would be a kind of confrontation with what the novel can do really like, if I go fully, if I just, like, because I could have gone a lot further, you know, I could have had no narrative at all. It could have been a bombardment of sensation and I could have been much more technical with the language about painting and stuff. But then I don't think you would have, it wouldn't have felt quite right for Bacon, who who was concerned and preoccupied with things like philosophy and narrative. And So, yeah, it, it, it it's funny reading it now because I, I realise that the experiment, I realise reading it now a year or so later how in it I was. And how that, even that short passage speaks to me of an immersion I did in the work. And I do wonder what it's like if you haven't had that immersion or whether it sits up on its own without it. I don't know. But that's the same thing you get after, you must have it a year or so after you finished a piece of work. You're like, what was, What was that? You know, what, what? can I see myself in it?
1: I think uh, particularly within, I suppose, like l- lockdown worlds as well. I think there's maybe a claustrophobia to everything <laughs> which perhaps like adds to that experience
0: and I wanted that I wanted it to feel that and also you know we were in we we are in a world of you know George Floyd had been murdered and and um and it was a respiratory illness people were people were dying of no breath and Bacon was asthmatic and was done was dying of, of not you know this refrain throughout the book of of, of not being able to breathe and not being able, you know I wanted it to to gallop into the reader's physical, viscerally, into the reader's physical and bodily body experience in the way the paintings do. So the kind of, uh, the, the remove of the literary, the sort of translating of things into literary language, or literary, the language of literary consciousness, which is in itself very artificial, felt too clean, which is why, and I, and I think the body is the answer to that, there's a lot of body, bodily fluids, liquid materials, food in it, I wanted it to do that, and that was one, that was one of the answers I felt to getting away from, from the kind of artifice.
2: I guess I was interested uh, with the death of Francis Bacon about your actual process. So you kind of touched on it when you introduced it in terms of we were all living in such domestic private spaces—the claustrophobia of that. But I was also, when reading it, it for the first time, and then again for our conversation today, about about your process. Because I remember reading about when you did grief as a thing with feathers that you'd often draw alongside the writing, yeah. and that you could never just deal with a blank page to type on and I was interested at whether you were writing directly from the paintings to get that pulse of feeling or, mm-hmm. or if there was another part of the process which uh, brought this book about.
0: Yeah I, I can tell you quite exactly I have uh, this wall in front of me here is, is all postcards and images for whatever I'm working on it's just covered in pictures. I had a notebook where I was writing down actual language but also elements that i wanted drifting through his subconscious so this sort of flickerboard of what he's scrolling through so like a, a quote from picasso or uh like an irish poem from the 1930s or something like that so i had to kind of mulch and the idea behind that was this book which i really love, um which is all the shit from his studio um so i thought actually uh, like how much would you need to realistically get at so, just for listeners, this is Incunabula. So it's it's literally mean, you can go and see all this stuff. It's on the floor of the Hugh Lane in Dublin. But um, books about painting, by by painters, um, p- pornographic magazines, lots of Mybridge pictures of animals and stuff like that. The famous stuff that he looked at. Um, sport magazines, dental hygiene adverts, um, and so I sort of kept I kept looking at all this kind of stuff, trying to get at that. Um, the energy because I'm obsessed with, with, with sequences of images and how I'm, my favourite kind of burge preoccupation is the sequence of images um, and how metaphors functions like a hinge and, and lived experiences brought into the sequence so I'm thinking like say I go from that story about King Edward that he's read in a children's book to his thinking about a William Nicholson still life to the nurse interrupting to say do you want more morphine or whatever it's not what any of those ingredients are. It's the energy generated by the movement from one to another and their juxtapositional friction and everything. And then trying to make that bacony. And then that sometimes necessitated, like, this is actually for my adaptation of the book into a play, which I'm doing, which is very different and very rewarding. But I'm holding up a picture, like a sketch of. A triptych with figures moving in front of it with kind of key bacon iconographical elements like a a broken umbrella or a bed or a a kind of half a chair. And so it is like the drawing. It, it, It occupied the same position as the drawings did for my previous books in as much as I need something flowing from brain down into my hand in order to activate the energy I I, I want to find in the prose or create in the prose.
2: It's really interesting as well hearing you as the author of those texts, like the the way that you went through that process, because my experience of reading your books is how active the reader is in the meaning making process, which is true to some extent with any literature. But I feel like for certain kind of hybrid experimental writing, as well as comics, there is a certain level of activity that the reader has to do to kind of, like, move between the collage that's happening on the page. So, like, that's something that really came out a lot. I feel like in all of your books, Jay and Lanny, they're, like, polyphonic voices. Mm-hmm. There are gaps in their understanding of what's going on. There's no omniscience, like, yeah. voice of as of a narrator. And so, like, us as the reader are, like, connecting dots or, like, creating that college meaning, collage meaning and stuff. Yeah. And then in Bacon, it felt, like, pushed even further because there wasn't the, the same narrative drive because like you say you're resisting that that was something I was interested in, in like how much you think about the reader's meaning making process in your books or if that shifts according to the project
0: yeah I mean I love that you think that and I think that's um exactly right I think it is a collaborative undertaking um and and I I guess it Partly it's you write in the way you can write, and partly you're trying to push yourself to do better the thing that you see as being limiting for that collaborative enterprise elsewhere so exposition and the sort of social realist setup whereby a reader is told backstory and things about the character and stuff removes the imaginative effort for the reader, I think, um but also um I also don't necessarily am not particularly interested in work that would fully exclude that imaginary effort by being so. Uh, so rarefied, or so opaque, or or whatever on the page that there isn't there isn't any opportunity, any invitation. I want to hit that sweet spot, and obviously Bacon's is very crowded, um, with 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 the famous stories and with the images and with this clutter that I'm identifying as being interesting to me on the studio floor. So I think you have to go to a level of abstraction uh, that that allows the reader to bring a certain amount of their understanding of art of the human body of of Bacon or not. And try and yeah, sort of grab sort of as Bacon would sort of pin the figure to the page using that. And if they don't have it, I wonder whether it's possibly better, but requires an emotional and intellectual effort uh, more than in my other books. Uh, It's been interesting. Yeah, I mean, the the yeah, I guess, I guess the blank space in the first one was absence, um, but it was also a function of the hybridity more than in my other books. With Lanny, the polyphonic thing, you know, I just wanted people to try and have a different register in their head where they could listen at the same time as they're reading. So, as you say, there's like the literary voice, the omniscient. There's there's the there's the body of the book, and then I wanted them to also tune into this this kind of oral register at the top and have a kind of counterpoint. And while you're doing it, like, because you don't want it to be a gimmick, but you want it to be different enough from the relaxed, because reading is such a highly charged experience anyway and it's not an innocent one and not like it's a highly artificial one like a very rarefied and strange and privileged one and I want to sort of announce from page one I know this is a strange thing like and I guess working in theatre prepared me for that a little bit just I was very preoccupied writing Lanny and since then working on a couple of plays and writing monologues for actors I'm I'm acutely aware that my novel writing has become a confrontation with the directness of encounter between audience and and reader that, that is that is more theatrical than literary um, and whether that's a good thing or not for my readers I don't know, I mean it, I, I suppose it means I'm more, I'm more attentive to voice rhythm, musicality atmosphere and less concerned with plot <laughs> character art, these sorts of things but you know then my editors come along and they're like can we just get a little bit of those things <laughs> in the faggot books please mate because we're trying to sell them <laughs> uh, you know, and we compromise I hope
1: <laughs> There's the theme of absence throughout all of your work. I think Mm. within, um, obviously grief is the thing with feathers. It's the death of the mother. Um, In Lanny, there's the absence of Lanny. Um, In Francis Bacon, I guess he's like, the space between life and death is a kind of absence. Mm. But then I think that's, to me, your work seems to be very interested in sound and very also very interested in silence at the same time. I feel Mm. like you're often trying Mm. to represent sound Or you're kind of investigating the spaces between sounds Mm. and I was thinking about because I knew that um, grief had been adapted for stage and I was wondering because theatre is often so much about the silences Mm. or like the the Mm. feelings that you can hold Mm. on stage as well as the things that have been said I was gonna ask you did you work on that and did that alter the way you thought about your books in terms yeah. of specifically, I guess, things you can hear.
0: And say it, it, it. I'd say it totally transformed it and clarified my original intent. Was that can I make work on the page that has the same? because obviously you imbibe a book totally differently than you do music. But like if I'm listening to an incredibly beautiful piece of ambient music that stops me in my tracks and gives me kind of full body tingles, as well as fires up various cerebral processes in my mind that feel like the opening of my soul, like almost a religious experience that you have when you're listening to music or spiritual one, at least like, can I do that (laughs) with a paragraph of prose And, and thinking it, not that, but possibly I can achieve something close to it, and how and it certainly isn't by telling my reader how to feel, it's by creating the conditions whereby through, as I'm saying, juxtaposition or absence the reader brings that to it themselves you ready them, you know like I don't don't read people writing about my work very much, but I was obviously flattered and excited to be drawn uh, to a conversation that George Saunders who had had with Jadie Smith about stuff a little while ago and they they come to talk about my book and she says he does this thing which is on paper totally preposterous at the end of the book which is he has these children stand on the beach and shout I love you I love you I love you I love you which is just a disaster like a disaster of kitsch and and she says but it totally works because of how he's got you there what he's done to get you there and I sort of thought well uh, that's it really so page two of any book I ever write I really think should only work because of what I did on page 1 and so on and so forth like the emotional blocking and that felt when I was watching grief well, or I, I was there doing it with them and that I suppose that extreme jeopardy exposure um the the, the silence around a person while they're waiting to speak so so um the the the, the, the risk of speech um the, the 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 I guess also the 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 shocking the bodily nature of it but also the sort of shocking realization when you're in the, the in the theatrical space of what can go wrong but also the miraculous uh success of the project that we are all in t- 500 people a 1000 people in total silence listening to the clacking of an actor's lips as he begins to speak or like those things seemed mind-blowingly intense and focused and, and possibly worth a trying to at least approximate or investigate on the page. Um, and that's why Lanny begins as it does, actually, just with no, there's a myth, <laughs> he sleeps under the village, it just starts. You know, like the wank, the banging of a tuning fork, like the play just, the, the curtain lifts and you're in that space. Um, and, and all the stuff that novelists have been taught to, to heap on, to tell you where you are and what year it is and what the characters like and how they dress and what their politics are and all this, can be figured out much further down the line once I've struck the ambient note. So I guess it was really an answer to my my kind of founding question as a writer, really, from when I was first fiddling around in notebooks as a teenager, to camp. Like, do I have to give up on music and art in order to write? Because when I write, I miss those things. And when I make music, I miss writing. And when I make art, I wish I had language at my disposal. And so I just gave up on all of them for a little while and thought I wasn't good enough at any of them. And I guess this is all part of my realization that in writing, I can have some of those energies from those other art forms, and and try and get close to them or circle around them or or something, and uh, you know. And then, as I said at the beginning, it, it has to be specific to each book. Um, but yeah, no, not to answer your question, Jess, uh, the theatre really changed my mind, um, uh, particularly with with ecstasy. I'm really interested in in the ecstasy of relatively ordinary things, domesticity and guilt and shame and, you know, how you can, in the shared space that the novel allows you, of examining those things, how you can fire one another up, how you can lift each other up and, and you know. So, yeah, I'd say, yeah, a whole wholehearted yes to me still being really super into the theatre. And not partly, like, from a, from a very simplistic point of view, collaboration is just heaven to me. I loved working with other people. Um, and now if I can be in a stage where I can sort of even even when I am alone writing for someone else to perform it or for someone else to adapt that I have other people's expertise and skill sets and ways of seeing the world built into how I'm working a bit more which in contrast to the kind of crushing self-absorption of the novelist's daily work is better I think I, I, I'm certainly enjoying it a bit more mm.
1: do, do you feel it's changed how you think about the reader, because oft, I would say as a writer, I am not that often thinking about the reader when I'm writing. But if obviously if you're writing for stage, you have to be aware of the audience all the time. D- has it altered your relationship with the reader, do you think?
0: Maybe, maybe notionally, maybe as part of like in conversations like these. Yes, I think it probably has. But I, I f- through luck or, or, or the nature of it, as you know, like once you're there in the page. No, I don't think I think about the reader particularly. Um, or I try not to you know like you, what you are saying about the difference between editing your work or, or working editorial, with an editorial mindset I had to shed a lot of that because of my old job um, and I have found like I'm really delighted to have found that when I'm in there in the blank piece of paper working those concerns mar- how do you market it who's it for am I being politically incorrect am I being you know, that all does just disappear when I'm working thank God I think if it didn't I, I wouldn't I, I'd i be like oh the, the writing isn't isn't for me at the moment, if it became too cluttered or too loaded with those concerns, I'd be worried. My whole effort is to lose, lose, lose those things at the door slightly, which is weird because the work is very, yeah. Like people, some, people often assume I read my work out loud to myself and I'm always saying to my mentees, like, read the work aloud, see how it sounds. And I don't do that for myself. I just hear it, and, you know, and I... I <laughs> not that you asked me but I'll now tell you like my working method is very uncomplicated I listen to music and write until I'm interrupted and then I stop writing it's not like I set aside days or special time or need a particular time of day or like if I'm not you know looking after a kid or walking in school I, and I have some time to write I try not to look at my email, but I don't even I do look at my emails a bit like I do stop and look at the news, or, or or like get angry with with the politics of the day, you know. Like I don't, and I, I can still somehow get back into the page and write. Um, but that may be the kind of work I'm writing on. Maybe if I was writing pure, beautiful prose as other people are able to, I'd need more silence in my life.
2: I think there's something really dem- democratic about like writers revealing that because there's there can be so many narratives around like the need to be. I don't know, at your desk eight hours a day or like showing out this thing or doing this. For people who maybe are budding writers or haven't put pen to paper, but like wanna write, that can be so mystifying to have that kind of like, shoved down your throat is the only way that you could write.
0: Well, doesn't it also add to the rather dangerous narratives of of writer on pedestal literature as rarefied art form that isn't available to you and you and you and you by dint of whatever it is, your class, your skin color, your your wage bracket, all of that's just tyranny. It's nonsense. It's a nonsense. So yeah, it's a bit like the pram in the hallway thing. I'm always very keen to say, like, best idea I've ever had was written down, uh, uh, you know, on, on a, a bus ticket while my kid was having diarrhoea in Nando's in Bromley. Like literally, like the only really seriously time I've ever been like, that's a good idea. I had to just not, ha- I just had to not have it for a second while I was cleaning up shit, you know. And that, that's that's how it should be because literature is life. So the idea that you remove it from life and bathe it in this strange light of commerce or whatever it is or or, or hype or elevation of mi- the mythic status of the creator is so damaging I think and also boring isn't it boring to think of art in that way and to living a life in that way as well <laughs> yeah right but that comes I was
2: thinking about the way that uh, the non-human in land is written about in Lanny, from the perspective of 2-4 and Lanny and Pete and whatever and how in Lanny, there's it feels like there's two things going on where there's like an explosion of the myths of England and the pastoral that we've been shoved down our throats for mm. centuries. And at the same time, this kind of pushing against that with a kind of reanimation of the land in all of its messiness and all of its detritus. And in doing that, there's an alternative ritual happening between like Lanny P. Two-Fort. Yeah.
0: That's a beautiful way. You have an unbelievably nice way of describing my work to me. Can I just maybe in future just call you and be like, what is this? Give you a pep Tell talk. me this one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Like writing landscape in Lanny and elsewhere, because obviously it's mm. a, like the non human crops up so much in your work with like be it Crow, Fort, writing the land in Lanny and that tension, I guess, between the myths of Empire and England that you're challenging in Lanny yeah. and Lanny and Pete's pagan reanimation mm. relationship with the land. Like, how did you
0: go about like writing those tensions? I suppose it's by accepting from the get go that those tensions are there. And, uh, you know, a bit like the question of, of can one write poetry after the Holocaust? Can can one, um, you know, or as Crowe says in the book, you know, like the needle in the arm. Like, in a post-death, post-environmental collapse. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking this today. Like, how can any of us be having any conversations about, um, you know, uh, criminality in our government at the same time as the children are starving in Afghanistan how can how can one function and 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 so the, the get-go for for Lanny was how as you said how can you reinstate ritual um how can you function emotionally how can you how can you dig deep in yourself and in, you know in, in in the kind of emotional architecture of your life for for kindness or eccentricity or care um, in in a context of perpetual cruelty or hypocrisy or 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 vulgarity, whatever it is that you're battling against, and I think one of the one of the things that was important for me from an environmental or ecological point of view was just to never deny or um, scurry away from what has been poisoned, both in the land and the human spirit. So which is why it opens with you know pesticides and that um, that the, if there is a spirit of the earth whether you, in whatever religious or spiritual tradition you want to frame it with whether you know for, uh, as you said I land I land in a kind of amalgamation of like left wing pacifist paganism you know in that area but you can find it in any tradition in the world How, where whatever framework you use be it Gaia or, or the military industrial complex or or pure money whatever it is it, it's about in in the gaps between what one the language one has inherited uh, and the interrogation one is doing of the of the damage of one's own violence, or the generosity or generative feelings that one can create one's own language. How to how to keep that tension real and true, without it being without it becoming the artifice of propaganda or or indeed of denial of just pretending it's not happening. Um, so I suppose I wanted to create something that was simultaneously highly um, unrealistic in a kind of magic realism sense, like a, a, a fable, but also. But not not you know I don't like these modern remixes of fables so much that are that are sort of, um that sort of, um, actually some of them I do like. But I guess what I'm saying is I didn't want that to be coddled or cutified or, or 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 taken to the sort of like that slightly the way denial slightly creeps in when you're saying oh it's a remix of a fable or it's an investigation of myth or folklore. It wasn't really, it was an investigation of something as crushingly ordinary as, as, as a difficult marriage and, and the sort of bigotry and xenophobia in an English village. Uh, same as grief wasn't, you know, ultimately it's not really about poetic homage or whether, whether Crow is a, a joke or a metaphor or a, a... It's about the fact that someone's got to make the pat lunches even though the most important person in the world died last night. You know, it's about that crushing ordinary... So I suppose that's what I'm always trying to do is go up and go down. Um, and keep things strung together. That is a terribly garbled answer to what was a really beautiful question. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I guess I don't really know. And it's funny you saying bacon is not of not not necessarily concerned with those questions because I felt maybe it was my it was my little holiday from those questions. And I'm back in that now in my work. How to write of of the of the earth? How to write non-human characters? Whether one should? Uh, whether it's whether whether it's cheap an exploitative, uh, whether it's appropriation uh, of the kind of most in vogue kind to give the tree the voice. Um, But, you know, as a tree worshiper, I I am preoccupied with how one would reinstate to them their complexity outside of our time frame. How would you write about deep time? What would it look like to realistically write, you know, a grumpy 38 year old English teacher living in you know, living in Essex, uh, at the same time as you're realistically and truthfully writing about the experience of an ash tree dying in her garden, like uh, I'm interested in how you can do that without it being literature, without it, without it putting on the clothes of contemporary sound work, work that sounds like literature. You know, of the moment.
1: I think as well, though, even though perhaps um Francis Bacon is a slightly. Different project. I think something I really appreciate about your work is that you talk about things like ecological threat and the natural world, but it really sort of celebrates the human at the same time. Like the intense viscerality of like the bodily aspects of the Bacon book, um, or like I don't know, kind of the joy you have of language and capturing the way people speak and like the choral elements yeah. of um, Lanny and. I think that's very much part of the same conversation but it's a part that sometimes gets neglected it's sometimes Mm -hmm. like oh Mm. that stuff is bad and Mm. we need to look after the earth better but is that something you think about kind of the the humanness Mm. of our crisis but how that's it's not necessarily a negative thing
0: yeah well I mean the most negative thing in the world which is you, you know humans (laughs) humans <laughs> you know the twin evils of of whatever you know uh white supremacy and um you know and industrialization or, or you know the exploitation of this planet like are they do they not contain wit do they not contain accident do they not contain charm and all the things that make us you know are they not erotic because they come from humans you know i, I i'm interested in both i was saying to, to one of the da- one of the dads at my son's football last weekend was like i haven't read your books but my wife says they're really horrible and really dark um and i and i said well they're they're they're, they're not really no, they're, they're quite upbeat i think they're quite joyful as well i think i hope that you know to, to describe them to someone that hadn't read them i i hope they're full of full of joy and, and gratitude um you know to, uh, one of the things we mustn't i think look, one of the one of the reasons why i'm really always keen to read the work of indigenous storytellers in whatever tradition is that they foreground uh joy humor the joke, the prank, um, as well as gratitude, whilst they are, you know, whilst they are, whilst they are also articles of activism or protest or deep, deep, insoluble pain. Uh, You know, one of the best books I ever worked on at Granta was a book about uh, Palestine that really, one of the most eloquent and devastating indictments of the occupation I've ever read, but it was... uh, so so good on resilience and and the function of jokes the function of humor you know when you're in a queue for 19 hours and then you get to the front of the queue and they just stamp on your passport and send you to the back of the queue like the life saving potential of, of finding that really fucking funny as well you know and humiliating for your oppressor um you know all they've done is show up the the limits of their power and uh, and so I, yeah I, I suppose I do want the two always there yeah um, and it 's totally accidental you you must find this about your work looked at dispassionately by someone else, possibly probably more eloquent than yourself as you two are like that your work is described back to you, and you go, Oh, those are probably my concerns, yes across across different bits of work for different you know notionally different audiences or whatever, like yeah, I have been consistently interested in that. Um, i suppose there's some things that we're all interested in now how to write about climate and things and other things that i think like childhood and and uh, and parenting and shame and things that are that are just going to be my preoccupations how to keep the saddest thing in the world also funny you know life is very very bleak but also i think um really frequently hilarious
2: in lanny one of the things that your hybrid form so well reflected is this kind of kind of like what we just what you just touched on and what Jess's question touched on about there are certain people who's like oh you know humanity is a monster like we as humanity have like destroyed the world blah, blah blah which creates like one a way too universal subject as like who the human is but two like yeah it really takes away from the fact that like actually it's not the majority of people hmm. but then one thing that I thought came through in Lani was the kind of the intergenerational divide that is like abundantly clear in this country in Lanny because it was done in such with such humour and with such like locality of like for example Peggy the neighbour and Lanny's mum there's the in the midsection that that's like one of my favourite passages where they're just living in totally different realities like the same thing is happening that she's they're like by a door talking to each other through a le- uh, through the letterbox but I was in a different cosmos at that moment in time like what how they're both yeah. receiving it and I fe- felt like that really reflected how much in this age of social media and digital communications and in the pandemic kind of conspiracies and this kind of stuff the form captured really well the fact that these different realities people are living in and so i wondered about how your hybrid forms capture the misunderstandings people have in a very humorous way that is mapped onto really serious stuff around intergenerational divides
0: i don't know i suppose I, i don't i mean i don't know i haven't thought about it in terms of I suppose the fragment the, I suppose the fragmentary form is one thing that I'm very preoccupied with. Um, instead of instead of s- describing in in four pages what a person is like, and and apparently setting up the absolutely impassable bridge between this person's psychosexual makeup and their neighbours in a conventional way using prose, I find it better to just drop a line of that person's dialogue that I feel does that work. Next to next to, do you see what I mean? Just like less is more, I suppose. And I've often wondered about myself whether that's laziness, or whether it is a result of my of my training as a reader, which has always been much more in the world of comics, children's books, and poetry. So that the speed of and the exactitude of those forms to get at the thing, you know, like a good ending to a poem or a startlingly bleak single single panel of a graphic novel that just hurts and there's no text at all it's just a kid looking out of a window or whatever i've always felt oh i want some of that economy rather than than the the bagginess of of prose but uh, that as i said earlier i think that is probably related as much to my limitations that i don't have a i don't have a natural skill with with um descriptive prose um, of getting people from a to b in that way um, I, lack, I lack the patience maybe, or it lacks the musicality that got me turned on to it in the first place, if you see what I mean. I'm not a mathematical writer, I'm a, I'm a sonic one. I'm the a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a drumming circle team at the village hall rather than the, the, the creative writing class, if you <laughs> see what I mean.
2: <laughs> it's what it does spatially as well, though, like the dynamism of that on the page. But what the movement that it, I went through as a reader was from going from the bigoted neighbor saying something racist or whatever it is to like the empathy through having her perspective in this polyphony of being like actually like beneath that surface comment, that surface bigotry, there's just like a profound loneliness in the way that people are kept apart from each other. And I think like that's what that's kind of like what that form your form can achieve is like developing that empathy. So it's like understanding between these divides, between this divisive society, which is like very convenient for those people who gain power from it
0: exactly it's exactly. like
2: an empathy building exercise which it feels like is achieved within that hybrid form you know in the way that you see quite quickly how people are misinterpreting each other but actually there's like quite a yeah. steep loneliness beneath that you know
0: i hope so and and you've but you've done that work as a reader i can't do it for you and that's good And it, and it means it works but then i also hope and maybe, maybe, maybe the monologues I'm writing are a kind of interrogation of this as well, which is that the, that's a cosy situation that, uh, that the, the novel has been quite self-congratulatory about. It's like, Because I've read The Kite Runner, I know what it's like to grow up in, in, in Afghanistan during a bloody war and I don't never need to do the work. Um, oh, there's a brilliant essay by Namwali Serpell about the limits of empathy and the kind of the way that the the the, the novel kits itself that it's an empathy machine, um, potentially potentially quite dangerously so. And I guess that I guess if I if I ever suffer from aversion or or, or an, the, a condition close to what would be conventionally called writer's block, it's it's that it's that I think I'm corny and cheap and on the wrong side of. Uh, on the wrong side of 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 the novel's historic um complicity in in that falseness of, of the empathy. Do you know what I mean? That I'm that I like by travelling into minds and setting up situations whereby, you know, so I I I I've I've had to sort of wrestle with the sort of sickness of the soul in that respect um about the representational politics of what I'm doing in novels and and also and trying and possibly my novels as escapism from the knottier questions of, of what power lies between the, you know like Jesse talks about the theatre like who I, I'm thinking like partly like who's moderating this encounter uh what's the institution how much did they pay to get in um who's presenting it what are the politics of favour putting a barcode on my book what's the price tag on the book you know where are they buying it why isn't it do you know what I mean like trying to to, to understand that all that is there in that in that precise encounter between Jolie and her next door neighbour um, whilst also trying to keep it out it's a bit like all the the brilliant Hillary Mantel thing about doing all the research on the Tudors and then literally saying nothing about them at all but we know it's there it's felt we know it's there so the freightedness of that the risk of that question do I understand Mrs Larton well do I, without me I'm not sending up a Daily Mail reader but but you know that that, that that's present in the encounter the the complexity of tabloid newspapers in this country and what they've done to foster ideas of do you know what I mean it's all there but I can't write like that but for fear of being a a terrible writer and b, uh
2: terribly wrong but then that goes I guess that goes back to the reader is the the demands that your work makes of the reader in terms of the meaning making process yeah. and that like it it's yeah it, it doesn't surprise me at all that like you're Kind of interesting comics, because that's what comics have done for yeah. me as a reader since I was a teenager, but still in terms of like yeah. how much can be captured in an economy without it's like show not telling the most
0: like deep, yeah. deep way and also don't comics particularly feel, i mean I, I feel like comics show me again and again and again that the novel is only just getting started in its ability to handle time uh, and the non human you know i'm working on a project with John Mcnaw and he uh, ex ex of your parish used to live uh in bristol now moved back to london but he is you know he will he will move me in the depiction of a stone creaking among other stones as water rushes over them and leaves or a seagull just sitting on a lamppost for a minute way you know i could read 300 pages of a novel and not be moved in the way i am by that that stillness like you asked about silence just like that 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 stillness that counterpoint between human busyness and the pebbles you know the pebble stillness. I, is miraculous and not to mention like who has voice like where is in most comics they're so sophisticated in terms of allocating dialogue to characters yeah so yeah I think I've I've learned more from from comics than than from a lot of forms yeah.
1: Touching on time I do actually think that you explore time in a very interesting way in your work and particularly um, in relation to grief in time Um, And I think maybe my favourite part um, in Grief is the line where it says, um, we were smack bang in the middle, years from the finish, taking nothing for granted, Um, like with regards to the relationship between the dad and the dead mum. And I love how then um, there's kind of a flashback to his first ever romantic experience, like when he was a teenager. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about that a little bit, the way that... um, Maybe the way that grief distorts our relationship with time or maybe more like, there's also a part where, um, you know, the dad's trying to remember the mum and the crow is saying to him, um, oh no, she she wouldn't be here if she was a ghost, she'd be in her childhood. Kind of the the way that we maybe fix people and experiences within memory and how that's not, it, it doesn't encapsulate the whole of
2: anything.
0: I mean you're basically asking for my whole philosophy of writing I think really you've landed on it really because uh, for me the it's time travel to to honor the dead you know I have this preoccupation with the fact that we are so wa- ra- wrapped up in the present and in ideas of what's coming that we just crucially like tragically neglect to uh, to listen to the voices of the dead like to consider that we are haunted at all times by what's come before us like genetically uh, 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 you know i'm made of my dad <laughs> i am him like I, uh, and novel seems to me one of the best ways we have to do that and it's one of the reasons why they're such a radical form to bring the past alive you know and people i work with you know people like Han kang i worked with in, in my past life that that was the focus of all our discussions was was mourning as love uh, as living raising children as as ancestor worship um and that that being a profoundly ecological undertaking as well as a um, a historical and a political one. Um, I also I like voice as well. Like I, I wrote a corny piece for BuzzFeed once, but in a way, it's sort of the key to all my work. But it was about hearing my father's voice, uh, and I don't have a way to do that. It's it's not. I don't have any camcorder footage or audio recording of my dad, um, but I have spoken to someone on the phone who I hadn't seen since I saw my dad, and and recognised his voice immediately, and it triggered this really long term and still evolving contemplation of 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 the voice in time um and what we have in our minds that we can't unlock so the the knowledge the certainty that my dad's voice is in there but I just can't get to it and could I possibly train myself to get to it um i find it's just the most delicious and heartbreaking thing to 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 have in the room with me while i'm writing anything be it, be it like a, a play or a novel or a, a note to someone or a text message or whatever um, and then as regards grief and, and time, you know, uh, have you read Time Lived Without Its Flow? Mm. That's me, um, Israely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I ended up agreeing to write an introduction to that despite, like, imposter syndrome the size of a of a cosmos. Because I, I, I wanted to be able to express in quite simple terms the impact that book had had on me, which was a complete um, clicking into place of, of the strange parallel universe you live in when you're in pain and why aren't we all in it because we are all in it and, and the efforts that, that you know that entertainment and, and and work and consumerism and and art go to to deny that we're all in that place together the universality of that you know and I think I think racism has a, a lot to do with it as well as as well as the kind of entrenched profit focused idea of you know a species that grows forward and forward rather than stopping and listening um waiting to for the for the for the ghost to catch up with us or whatever it is so i i I feel like time is the thing time is the project um and and i I can't really talk about my new book because it's not fixed yet, but one of the my preoccupations in it has been how far from the present do I need to travel to escape what I consider to be this clanging wrongness in the way that we're considering time um the sort of fetishization of of lived experience present enriching of uh, under the the kind of not like in grief i guess the happiness industry and in lanny i guess like the village or or you know community and in bacon the, the idea of is it a is it you know the bacon the picture that's on the wall with the price tag with the explanation text telling us what to think it is you know telling us what's in the image what's it of you know this what i consider to be this sort of counterproductive and quite perverse um Uh, prison of the present Um, and just wanting all the time to just kick that door open a bit and let and and that can be a self that can be self-work as well like letting childhood into adulthood letting other forms into one you know let cross pollution um cross this multidisciplinary work seems to me always better at getting to it than than the thing that limits itself um so yeah i I think that's absolutely right um an obsession with time and pain (laughs) (laughs) and them being the same thing i love that you've asked me these questions i'm so grateful thank you
2: i just also thought as you were saying that about the the your interest in ecstasy and and the being in the the experience which obviously in the last two years we haven't been able to have of like being in a theater or a a collective space wherever it might be and like being held there in that ritual all experiencing the same thing it's like the ceremony of that and i think it's like in the west we're so lacking in ceremonies of grief or collective ceremonies of grief or ceremonies of joy or or whatever it is yeah and how detached we've become from those collective experiences but I guess the theatre it's very small isn't it yeah
0: it's very small like the theatre is extraordinary public displays of art and affection sport even the extraordinary things but if you think about are sort of watered down Christian rituals uh, you're, or in the funeral suits or whatever compared to the the the, the, the rioting and the wailing and the bloodletting and the and even you know even harvest you know gratitude for the turning of the earth or you know what knowing today is in bulk and, and knowing that the earth you know that the sun has done one lap further round and we are we are starved of it I think uh, in a way that we can all fix for ourselves in small individual ways but I, I also think is a, is I directly connect that the impoverished absence of those rituals particularly in in our develop- you know in our in western society with with the with the the ills of the project like at the moment, just watching so for example like someone like Nadine doris the the how threatened she is by range by by diversity by new voices by by change um by 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 the uncanny. Um, or the impure by dirt, you know, by 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 institutions bending and flexing, yeah. Like it's a bit like people. It's a bit like you know, um, fear of fear of trans or whatever it is. Like you have to be a, quite quite psychoanalytical, I think, about the cause of that fear and how and how it relates to our institutions and control. Because one of the amazing things about the rituals that you're describing, I think, is that they are a collective acceptance that we aren't in control that we are waiting for the sun to shine or the rain to fall or, or or for our lives to be taken from us or given back to us or whatever it is. Um, I really, Someone the other day was talking about that they'd been in a theatre group when they were young and it was, they came, you know, it's a bit, I, I, same thing for me, you know, like that kind of classic, lots of things I'm grateful for in it, but, you know, co-ed, state school, banter, 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 what you into, what's your tribe, are you, you know, are you a hip-hop head or a goth or whatever it was in 1994 when I was doing it? And there was just this theatre group that was freedom, and uh, and as it happened, like smoking weed and snogging as well, which were good things to to have come into my life. But but also just eccentricity and voice and and being told that you had you could speak, you could sing, and if you squeaked, it didn't matter. Blow blow the note out of your instrument and see what you hear. You know, and those are those are not especially radical tools in the pedagogical sense. Like we shouldn't have to. Um, prescribe those things for a society that's sick for lack of them. They should be in our society as part of the work we all do, irrespective of all the things that divide us. So, without, yeah, without sounding too much of a hippie about it, I really, you know, if I can get back into literature that is bought in conventional ways or borrowed from a library or, or handed from person to person, if I can get back into it, um, a, a, a rigorous reanimation of some of those things, then I'd be, then I'd be deadly chuffed. A banging of the drums. The best thing someone ever told me about this one was that they were a grief counsellor for children and that they took... Um, God, it makes me want to cry, but only because I'm envious, right? <laughs> only because I want to be that child. <laughs> they took these kids into, this, into the garden or whatever it was of the, of the you know, clinic or whatever and just encouraged them to be crow and, and run around the place. And, you know, they, they didn't need to read the book the kid. They only needed to take something that they found in the book and share it. And it was just wailing and shouting and screaming, and she just was stood in this nice signing queue at a bookshop somewhere, telling me this story, and I was just like, it—it it was like, you know, the gift of liquid after you've been dehydrated. Just what a fantastic use! And if that's only one person, then brilliant. I've done. I've done it. You know. To me, some of what you were saying about, like, yeah, how detached we've been from,
2: from shared experience, from collective experience, from ceremony. I feel like in the character Dead Papa Toothwart, he encapsulates some of that because he's holding so many voices at once in different mm. ways. So I wondered if it would be nice to finish with a reading
0: of Dead Papa Toothwort. Dead Papa Toothwort wakes from his standing nap an acre wide and scrapes off dream dregs of bitumen glistening thick with liquid globs of litter. He lies down to hear hymns of the earth. There are none. So he hums. Then he shrinks, cuts himself a mouth with a rusted ring pull and sucks up a wet skin of acid-rich mulch and fruity detritivores. He splits and wobbles, divides and reassembles, coughs up a plastic pot and a petrified condom, briefly pauses as a smashed fibreglass bath, stumbles and rips off the mask, fills his face and finds it made of long buried tannic acid bottles. Victorian rubbish! Tetchy Papa Toothwart should never sleep in the afternoon. He doesn't know who he is. He wants to kill things, so he sings. It sounds slow, nothing like tarmac bubbles popping in a heatwave. His grin takes a sticky hour cheering up he chatters in the voice of a cultured fool to the dry papery wings and underbark underlings to the marks he left here last year to the mice and larks voles and deer to the quaint memory of himself as cyclically reliable As part of the country curriculum, he slips through one grim costume after another as he rustles and trickles and cusses his way between trees. He walks a few paces as an engineer in a day-glow vest. He takes a step in a dinner suit then an Anderson shelter, then a tracksuit, then a rusted jeep bonnet, then a leather skirt, but nothing works. He pauses as an exhaust pipe, then squirms into the shape of a rabbit snare, then a pissed-on nettle into pink strangled lamb. He plucks a blackbird from the sky and cracks open the yellow beak. He peers into the ripped face as if it were a clean pond. He flings the bird across the forest stage, stands up woodlot, bare, bushy and stamps his spalted feet. His body is a suit of bark armour with the initials of long-dead teenage lovers carved in the surface. He clomps through the wood, wide awake and hungry for his listening. Only one thing can cheer up crotchety toothwort, and that's his listening. He slides across the land at precisely the speed of dusk and arrives at his favourite spot. The village sits up pretty to greet him, sponged in half-light. He climbs into the kissing gate. He is invisible and patient and about the size of a flea. He sits still. He listens.
1: If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Story Smith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online.
2: We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.